No few of you, I don't doubt, have seen it. Uh, if you don't know what the story is about, it is basically about a young laddie by the name of Kevin McAllister who is uh, trying to hold his own as his home is assaulted by these burglars while he is there home alone while his family, strangely enough, has gone off to Paris on vacation and left him behind to film for himself. And uh, it's, it's regarded by some, maybe not you, but by some as something of a modern-day comedy Christmas must-see classic, uh, especially remembered, won a lot of awards, believe it or not, and uh, made a ton of money, and I don't remember how many sequels were, were I was going to say, attempted to be made. They were made. I just don't know if they were worth watching, but anyway. Um, but it, most especially Macaulay Culkin's young, amusing act antics, of course, that's what really made the film so, so memorable. It's, it's okay. It's, it's comedic, it's slapstick genius in many respects. Yeah. Uh, it's also something of a sad reality. Because the truth is, many are home alone. Um, this time of year... And, uh, you know, that the, the, the ode of the idea of it being the most wonderful time of the year, uh, that lands a little flat on a lot of us. And uh, so much so that perhaps you might find literally or symbolically songs such as Blue Christmas or I'll Be Home for Christmas right at the top of the playlist. And even if no one's singing it, you're feeling it. And, and that is but something of an expression, uh, a, uh, a token, that season of the year and that felt burden is but a token and expression of what's being felt the rest of the year. Which makes what we're going to look at here over the next few minutes really good news. Especially good news. This third in this series of four as we've been looking at it here this Advent season, the good gifts that God gives to his people through Christmas. The good gifts that God gives to his people through Christmas. A couple weeks ago, the first of these installments was, you may remember this, justification and the gift being, the, the, the assurance being that we are accepted in Christ. We are accepted in Christ before God, secure in our standing. Last week, Chris Hatch, he was delivering the message on sanctification, and that meaning simply that we are no longer bound to our sin. We are free, and that is good news as well. Now, this third of the four here this morning is the reality, the gift of the indwelling spirit. And with that, we have the assurance and the good news that we are not alone. We are not alone because of that reality, and that is good news indeed. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of John. Uh, if you're trying to find that in your pew Bible or in your own Bible, it is going to be on the screen. It is on the screen now, uh, but uh, Matthew, these are the, the Gospels that we have, uh, the historical records that we have of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, so we're in John chapter 14, 
there's a lot in here that we could be looking at in chapters 14, 15, and 16. We're going to dance around a little bit in there, but mostly we're looking at this particular text. It's on the screen, Matthew 14, verses 16 through 26. Matthew 14, verses 16 through 26. Hear now the word of God. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he, we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that the, you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Well, can we pray for a moment? Lord, thank you for giving us this sweet opportunity to eavesdrop into this teaching that you were delivering to your disciples right there on the eve of your betrayal and crucifixion. Certainly, that has to heighten the stakes of uh, what was transpiring there in that moment. And uh, we need to hear, as, as much as they did, we need to hear these words. Indeed, even as you spoke then, you are speaking now, now to us. As we open up the pages of your word, you are speaking, we know, now to your people. And we ask that you would give us, even in this moment, even these few minutes here together, ears with which we, even us, would hear. Oh, would you do this deep, mysterious work within our, our very souls, uh, such that truly, as uh, we oftentimes say, that not a single one of us would leave this place unchanged for the time that we spend here together with you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. I have a headline that probably will get no few of your uh, attention. Nine apps to help you beat holiday stress. That's all it takes. Did you know that? Nine apps to beat holiday stress, because obviously the deal is no few of us have a whole lot going on and need just a little bit of help to make it through this, this season. So I'm, only go I'm not going to read you all nine. I'm just going to give you the top two, at least for my money. Uh, first is Punchbowl. I looked these up. These still exist. Punchbowl. 
and the Punchbowl app, don't do it right now, please, um, uh, is the idea is you can send out custom-made invitations to whatever kind of party or gathering you're pulling together. You send out these custom-made invitations. You get the reply via text to, from your guests. There are, there are RSVPs. As they come in, you get it notified by, by text. Isn't that wonderful? You feel relieved by your stress already. The, uh, the other uh, app, which I thought was kind of interesting, is called Drizzly, not Grizzly, Drizzly. Drizzly, if in fact these holiday gatherings do in fact require alcohol, and many of them do, um, this is an opportunity for you to just forego and bypass the need to go by the ABC store because you just sign up and they'll bring you the holiday spirits right to the, your door and therein you have cheer, you know, right there on site. That's great. These things are incredibly, I suppose, if, if, it, if you find that needful, uh, helpful. But the fact is they only can go but so far. And not just because it's only an app. But such help, such things, such uh, aids can only take you but so far because they're only addressing but surface level needs. And when you think about it, when you really think about it, the busyness of the holiday season that these things are trying to address, that very busyness is oftentimes a cloak and a cover for the loneliness that we actually feel. How's an app gonna fix that? We need so much more, so much more, which then takes us into our text where Jesus is in fact speaking to the angst, the pain, the struggles of loneliness and our fear of abandonment. In this passage, these chapters here, beginning in chapter 14, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. Or you could put it this way, the transition of his presence. We'll get to that in, in a minute. He is fortifying his followers for ministry in the days, weeks, years to come. He is assuring them that even while he will be physically absent from them, he will be spiritually present with them in the person of the Holy Spirit. We'll be talking about that as we go. Now, as I was saying to Sarah a few days ago, as I thought, oh my goodness, what deep waters I have jumped into trying to preach on this today, um, there's no way you can cover the third person of the Trinity in one message. So it's not going to happen. However, we can mine, we can explore deeply this particular passage, at least to some degree, and discover some astonishing, wonderful, wondrous things, indeed about the ministry and person of the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is getting, trying to get across to us. Indeed, as I said a minute ago, we are not alone. We are not alone, for God has sent His indwelling Spirit. We are not alone, for God has indeed sent His indwelling Spirit. His indwelling Spirit. Who and what are we talking about there? We're going to approach this by trying to get at three different questions, the answers to three different questions, and, and they're these, in, in order. First, who is this? 
Second, what does he do? And thirdly, how do we receive him? So who is this, what does he do, and how do we receive, receive him? So you have a who, you have a what, and you have a how. So first, who is this? Now you may be wondering, by the way, let me just try and cover this from the outset. Some of you may be thinking, this is a really weird direction to go at Christmas time, isn't it? Uh, to be talking about the Holy Spirit. Well, have you read the Gospels? <laughs> have you? Can we go to Luke uh, chapter 1 for just a moment where he is explicitly mentioned? Uh, you have uh, the angel Gabriel showing up there in Nazareth to this young lady named Mary. You may have heard of her. And uh, he makes this announcement to her as to what's about to, to happen. And she understandably has a question. How is this going to happen? And this is the angel's response there in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, all right, so there we have the Holy Spirit very much involved with the coming of Jesus, with the incarnation. But again, who is he? Who is he? Well, let's, let's come at this from two angles. First, the personality of the Holy Spirit, and then secondly, the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So first, the personality. But this is what I mean by that. The Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, the one that John 14, 15, and 16 is, Jesus there is speaking of, is not a force. Star Wars fans, I'm with you. This is not who we're talking about. This is not an energy field that binds the universe together. This is not some strange cosmic energy. The Holy Spirit is a person. A person. You see it even with the personal pronouns that are used in connection with him, not it. I don't know how many times I've heard the Holy Spirit referred to as an it. He is not an it. He is a person, therefore the personal pronouns are he and him. Every time we see his personality reflected in what he does. Uh, time and again, uh, we see something along these lines, even in what we read for a moment ago, we see that the, the Spirit teaches. Skipping on to chapter 16, we'll get there in a little while, we see that he guides and then he convicts. Force doesn't do that. Energy fields don't do that. It doesn't do that. He, the Spirit, does. He is a person. We need to be straight. We need to be clear on who we're talking about when we think of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing. So the personality of the Spirit. The second is the divinity of the Spirit in that He is fully God. All through the, the Scriptures, Old and New Testament, it just gets increasingly clear as you move through the Scriptures who this is, the divine attributes, uh, the um, divine authority is, 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 is attributed to Him in ways that, 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 that can only be attributed to a member of the Godhead, a person within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see it actually alluded to even in what we read a moment ago. When Jesus in verse 16, chapter 14, verse 16, speaks of him as another helper. Now we're going to unpack a whole lot more what that means in a few minutes. But when Jesus refers to him as another 
helper, that another should be a clue, that word. Because in essence, what he is saying is this. Just as I have been this, a helper, now whatever that is, we'll unpack that in a minute, but just as I have been this for you, so he will be this for you. Now, so there's something very much like the two, the Son and the Spirit, and can we just take a step back and think for a moment, how does Jesus think of himself? How does he speak of himself? Well, if you just look even just at John's Gospel, and just at John's Gospel, in the great seven I am statements that make it very clear that Jesus is in fact fully God, yes in the flesh, but fully God, and now he's saying that the Spirit is another like him, you see where this is going? that the Spirit is another like Him. It can only mean that He is just as much God as the Son is. The Spirit is just as much part of the Trinity as the Father and the Son. Oh, how we need to be clear, clear on who the Spirit is, fully personal and fully divine. You think in terms of some of the the traditions this time of year, the wrapping of gifts, right? Now, why do we do that? To conceal, to hide, to throw the recipient off, right? And that's fine. That's great. But that's just the opposite of what the Lord is trying to do for us in our understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. Not to conceal, but to reveal, Not to hide, but to display, to make clear that we would know, that we would understand. John 14, verse 17. It's quite striking. We saw this a few minutes ago. Uh, The second part of verse 17. You know him, for he dwells, he, he dwells with you and will be in you. Now note what Jesus says here. He says, he does not say, he does not say the spirit is near you and will be amidst you or around you like in the Old Testament era, God's presence in the tabernacle and the temple, he's saying that the Spirit will be with you and within you. Now think with me. This fully personal and fully divine Spirit, Christian, do you know who has taken up residence in your life? Do you know who dwells within the center core of your being? Do you know that? Even this very moment, considering the fact that he is personal, just some implications there, just real quickly. He can be known. There is a relationship that the follower of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus, has with the spirit of Jesus. He can be known, he can be prayed to, he can be heard. Because he's personal, he's divine. Fully God, which means, which means he can enter into every aspect of our lives, every part of it, and move into it. All the hurt. All the pain all the brokenness, all the burdens. He does not stand off and watch. He's moving in. Do you know that? Do you know who has taken up residence within you? 
as a temple. What a gift. What a promise. What an assurance. We are not alone, friends. We are not alone, for God has given us the indwelling Spirit, the Spirit of God. That's who He is. What does He do? What does He do? That's the second point. Well, let's look, in fact, at some, just a few, just in this particular place, this, ta- this passage, this text, uh, the titles, the, the, the names, if I can put it that way, the, how Jesus describes the Spirit. So chapter 14, verses 16 and 17 again, and I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you, even the Spirit of truth. And then skipping over to chapter 16, verses 12 and 13, I still have many things to say to you, but I cannot, you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. So Jesus describes the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit, as the Spirit of truth. What does that mean? It means at least this much. He speaks only the truth. At least it has to mean this much. He speaks only the truth. That is to say, in opposition to all the lies and accusations of the world around us, our broken hearts, and Satan himself. He stands opposed to all of that, in contradiction to all of that. He speaks only the truth. But that's not all that we see here. It's not all that we see. It's not all that Jesus means here. And that was alluded to in what I read from chapter 16. Let's look now a little bit more at chapter 14 down at verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, certainly this is alluding to the broader ministry of the Holy Spirit to teach and to guide His people, including us, even today. That ministry of the Holy Spirit that continues. And part of that is to illumine our minds and to understand what it is that we have here in the Scriptures. That's partly what that involves. But that's not actually what Jesus is speaking of here. That is a real and important for us to recognize as part of the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit today, but that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is not the illumination of the text, but the inspiration of the text. Where did it come from? Who is the ultimate author? Jesus is showing us here that it is the Spirit who would guide the apostles, the New Testament writers, such that what we have here the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament are absolutely as inspired, infallible, and as authoritative as the 39 books of the Old Testament, which is a source of tremendous confidence for His people today. We know where this came from. We know who spoke it into, into being. What good news that, that is. But that's not the only title that Jesus gives the Spirit in this passage. I alluded to this a few minutes ago. Now we're going to come back to it. Uh, It's a word that is used four times in chapters 14, 15, and 16. We've seen it already in chapter 14, 14, 16. In 14, 26. It's also used in chapter 15, 26. And again in chapter 16, 7. You're like, what's the word? And? No, 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 no. It's a Greek word. Paraclete. And it's such a, a word of such depth 
and um, significance that English translations struggle with exactly how to articulate it, how to translate it, and in many ways it depends on the context. And so depending on your translation, the NIV, the ESV, the RSV, the NAS, the KJV, whatever you have, probably there's, I don't know, who knows how many different versions of this word right here in front of in your, our laps right here at this moment. But so here, here are some examples, and they're fine. There's nothing wrong with them. Counselor. Okay, someone who's wise and can speak into a situation. Or a comforter, one who comes alongside and gives strength and solace. Or an advocate, one who stands with and um, stands beside and, and um, accompanies in a legal sort of setting. Or, uh, as the ESV has here, a helper. Uh, one who comes alongside and renders assistance and aid as, as needed. They're all fine. They're all touching, getting at this one word, paraclete, para, that's the first half, meaning to come alongside like paramedic, okay? So para, to come alongside, kaleo, which means to call out, to argue, actually. It's a bit of confrontation that can be. Uh, ascribed to, to this word. So a para, parakaleo, to para, a paraclete. Another way to think about this, or maybe a way to bring it all together, is this is a friend. The best friend that you could possibly imagine. A friend who is willing to challenge you, who is, who is willing to, to stand up and confront others for you, but confront you for you. A really good friend will do that, will confront you for you, right? He will, comes to challenge and to convict in and where necessary, but also at the same time to comfort and to encourage and to build up and to strengthen. You see how, why all these different words come into play with the, the translations here. This is the best friend imaginable. This is who we're talking about. This is the Holy Spirit. This is who he is. This is what he does. This is the, excuse me, the ministry, the work of the paraclete. Now, think with me. Do you have a friend like that? Have you ever had a friend like that? Even the best friend you've ever had in your life on this earth is but an echo of the potential of the ministry, the work of this friend in your life. Think with me. This, the Spirit, is said to dwell within you, meaning He is with you, Christian, wherever you go. There's no other friend you have that can be like that. He is with you because He dwells within you. He is with you wherever you go. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter your circumstances. It doesn't matter the time of day or the place on the earth. He is with you. In addition to that, we're told that he dwells with us forever. So, that has to mean that not only is he with us no matter where, he is also with us no matter what, as in what, what we have done or have not done. He, we have the assurance that he will stick with us. Unlike any other friend, and we, we all bear the scars of friends who didn't do that. The friend who will stick with you and speak to you, and who knows you so well, and loves you so 
well that can speak to you in such deep and transformative ways. This is a really good gift. We're not alone. We're not alone. God has sent his indwelling spirit. So that's who this is. That's what he does. How do we receive him? Well, that's especially worth considering when you look a little bit more at some of the ways that Jesus describes and speaks of the Holy Spirit. If you want to look with me at chapter 14, verse 12, we haven't looked at that yet, but he says, kind of building up to this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Now think back to what, if you've already just read John 1 through 13, what that might include. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, not that his followers are going to do more spectacular things, but that they will do greater things in terms of scope and number. That's what Jesus is getting at. Because he is leaving and the Spirit is coming, his followers over time will do more things in terms of, greater things in terms of scope and number. Unless you didn't get it there, you can see in chapter 16, verse 7, he says something even more striking. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. To your advantage, it is better. That's what Jesus is saying here. Are we hearing Jesus is saying, it is better that I go. In fact, for the Spirit to come, I have to go, and it will better, be better for him to come than for me to stay, which means, by implication, think with me. Every Christian now, on this side of Pentecost, which we read from Acts 2, every Christian now, on this side of Pentecost, is better off than the disciples were at that moment as they are standing in the physical presence of Jesus. That's what that means. That's the only thing that it can mean. I'm glad you're sitting down. It's hard to get your mind around, right? But that's what Jesus is saying. It's to your advantage. It is better. And he is not using euphemisms here. Okay, so with that, now we can really, maybe, the, the stage is set. How do we receive him? Oh my goodness, if that's true, how do we receive him? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> By believing. By believing. By believing in him, in Jesus, by turning to him, by trusting in him, by looking to him, by leaning upon him. Or if I can put it this way, by believing in the first paraclete, therein you will receive the second. By believing and trusting in the work of the first paraclete, you will then receive the second. Jesus makes this clear through his apostle John uh, in 1 John chapter 2. So if you want to go a few books to the right with me, 1 John chapter 2, um, verses 1 and 2. John uses some familiar language here. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. There's that word, paraclete. We have an advocate with the Father. Who is that? Jesus Christ the righteous, the first paraclete. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. So, Jesus, John is saying, Jesus is the propitiation. He is the great sacrifice. The one who has given up his life for us, for our sake, taking our place. Such that the wrath of God due to us for our sin would be removed. That's the sacrifice of propitiation. That the wrath due to us would be removed from us. So much so that there is nothing left. There is no price to be paid, no debt to be paid. There is nothing left. It's done. It's done. Utterly, utterly done. Jesus is the sacrifice of propitiation for our sin. Now, he is also the paraclete there in 1 John 2. He is the paraclete. In this sense, I said, you know, it depends on the context. Here it takes on that word, that legal connotation of an advocate, of a representative for you in God's court. Okay? And Jesus, as our paraclete, as our advocate, 1 John 2, is presenting a case. What's the case? What's the case that he is presenting there in that setting? Here's the case. Father, I know what he did. I know how she sinned against you. I know how he has flagrantly broken your law. I know how she has done that same thing again and again and again. I know. I know. I paid for it. I bear the scars. I stand before you eternally. I bear the scars having been. I am the propitiation for their sin. I bear the scars for what it is that they have done. Justice, Father, has been served. So I plead. Here's the plea. Here's the case. I plead justice. Jesus is not pleading mercy for you. He's pleading justice for you. Justice for you. Because justice has already been done. There's nothing left to be paid. He's done it. He bears the scars. So, Father, it would be unjust, do you see? Unjust for them to have to pay anything. Because I have paid it all. This is my case. And the judge is just and eternally hears the case and we are free. Yeah. Hallelujah. Gloria. Gloria. Oh, this is good news. To know the work of the second paraclete, we need to embrace the work of the first if you know the work of the, and have embraced the work of the first, you have the second. You have the second. Now, th I said that there's two senses in which we need to receive and can receive the Spirit. The first is that once for all, so what I've been talking about the last few minutes, that once for all sense in which we receive the Spirit, you receive as you believe, put it that way, okay? You receive as you believe. There's also an existential ongoing 
sense in which we are to receive the, the Spirit. And that has to do with resisting to lies. If we are to enjoy the ministry of the, pres- of the presence of the Spirit, if we are to flourish as we're intended to with the work and the presence of the Spirit in our lives, there are two lies that have to be done with in our lives all the time. All the time. And the first is what I'll call a secular deception. A secular deception. It's, it's hinted at in chapter 14, verse 17. Uh, you, uh, excuse me, yeah, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Uh, this secular deception, the idea that there, there, there is no spiritual, whether stated explicitly or even just simply lived out uh, implicitly, here not so much speaking in terms of an estrangement from our creator, but rather a cynical disbelief just a cynical disbelief that, you know, if I can't explain it, if I can't measure it, if it can't be proven with the tools of science, well, then I won't believe. And that line of thinking has infected the church. And we have to push back against that lie. But there's another one, and it's probably more pre- prevalent in our circles. And that is what I'll have to call a theological convenience. So a, a secular deception says there is no spirit. And the theological convenience well, doesn't have any room for the spirit. Though doctrinally we'll confess such. No room for mystery. Uh, l- listen, God in fact of course is, is a God of order. And we are made in his image. So it makes sense that we would struggle to make sense out of God. Right? That makes sense. It stands to reason that being made in the image of a a God of order, that we then would try to make sense of God. That makes sense. And that's good to do as an image bearer of God. In submission to what the Scriptures have to say, but what do the Scriptures say? Do the Scriptures actually give us a place to think that we can figure God out. That we can corner the market on all things divine. That we can eliminate all aspects of mystery to life. Do the scriptures actually take us there? No, they do not. No, they do not. And we need to be very guarded against that theological convenience that wants to just make everything neat and tidy and tied up with a bow. That's not life as described in the Word. To receive the Spirit, we must do so in that once-for-all sense, but must also do so in an ongoing sense as we rely upon and look to Him in all things, which, as we do so, brings us to, into, into something greater, so much greater, a story that began before the world's beginning. It's kind of like the hero's journey. The, those of you who have studied the, the great myths and the things that tie those together. The hero's journey where the, the hero, the man or the woman, is given a, a, this, this gift. And this gift is the thing that enables them to uh, endure the dangers and accomplish the quest and arrive at the destination. You, know, you have King Arthur and Excalibur. That's, that's the thing that he is given. Or... Um, 
Frodo is given the file of Galadriel. Or in George MacDonald's, the, um, oh dear, I'm forgetting the name of the book now. Uh, her name was uh, Irene. The Princess and the Goblin. She's given a little ring. This little ring. And you see, this is a, it's, a, it's an element in so many of the, the old, old stories. And it, 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 it ensures that they're going to make it to the end. And it's going to go exactly as planned. In, in the end. In the end. Which is what makes, here's where my dig comes, what makes the Hallmark Christmas specials so problematic. Yes, of course, they're popular. I saw this stat. Some 50 million people saw at least one in 2019. I can only assume it's more so now. Yes, of course, they're popular. Yes, of course, they're a little predictable. You have the template, right? You have the reluctant woman who returns to her hometown. You have the, the sworn enemies who before the hour and a half is over have fallen in love. You have the great conflict, the obstacles to everything overcome by a Christmas miracle. And then, of course, you have a happy ending for everyone. Of course you do. Here's what you don't have. Did you ever notice, and this is, this is true, I think, without exception, except when they, build, when they make a sequel. That's not fair, because it ruins my point. But in almost every other case, you don't know after the credits roll what happens. Like, what happens in January <laughs> when the dude catches the flu, right? <laughs> or he forgets her birthday in March or, or whatever, right? You don't know. You don't know. The ultimate ending is never disclosed. Friends, with, with this story, the end is disclosed. The end is certain. The outcome is sure. How do we know? How do we know? Because Jesus has given us these gifts. These gifts of Christmas. And among them is his presence in the person of the Holy Spirit now. Which, by the way, is but a partial fulfillment of the even greater promise of Emmanuel. I will be your God and you will be my people, and I will be with you. I am with you. As great even as the gift of the Spirit is, that's but a partial fulfillment of the Emmanuel promise. So as much as has already come, there's even more coming. Hallelujah. Glory. Let's pray. Lord, Jesus, thank you for these words. Thank you for this assurance. Thank you for this gift. Oh, would you help us to hear, to believe, to submit our thoughts and our minds to what you have said, that we would be, well, certainly open to the reality of the spiritual realm but open to your influence in our lives. Oh, would you help us to submit our hearts, our lives to the presence of the Spirit, to look to Him, the very presence of you, Lord Jesus, in this Trinitarian mystery. 
This is the only explanation we have for the explosion of the church in the first century. And it's the only hope we have years later, now in the 21st century. Oh, would you help us to lay hold of these things and to rejoice. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We have all probably had the experience, either as a parent or as a child or both, of at Christmas time, the parent giving the child money so that the child can go out and buy a 